Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Long Game with LZ and Leach. Welcome to The Long Game with LZ and Leach from the Recounted Acast, where every week we talk about the biggest stories in sports and how they impact culture, politics, and business. I'm LG Grandison. I'm a little afraid of World War III. He's Will Leach. World War III? Wake me up when it's World War VIII. Uh, it's totally not true. I'm terrified. Yes, LZ, we have a very full slate today. And just a note before we get going, by the way, our normal podcast platform is down today. Some tech issues, I assume, involving Putin. So if it sounds a little wonky, that's why. I apologize. But uh, hey, you know, on to the show. First, we're going to talk about the response of the sports world, most notably Russian and Ukrainian athletes, to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It seems telling to me, LZ, that no Russian athletes are coming out in support of Putin right now. What about your friends? Are they going to let you down? Are they going to be around, baby? Was that that good? That was beautiful. (laughs) Then we're going to take a look at Phil Mickelson. Phil, 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 and the hazards of sports washing and how his support for a Saudi-backed golf tour to rival the PGA may have hastened the end of his career. This is your warning, Clay Thompson. You too, James Harden. That is the only way those two people have anything in common with Phil Mickelson. And thank God for both Clay Thompson and James Harden for that. We'll also discuss the latest developments in Major League Baseball's ongoing labor negotiations. Just when it looked like games would be canceled, the owners made some significant, for them anyway, concessions to the players on Monday for the first time since the work stoppage began in early December. And LZ, there's hope now, precious hope, that the season might start on time, though the listeners may know better than I do at this point. Do the listeners know if Clayton Kershaw is going to be a Dodger? That's all I care about right now. As long as he doesn't pitch in Japan, I don't care where he pitches. Then we'll wrap up the show with our This Week in Sports History segment, this time featuring Southern Methodist University receiving the quote-unquote death penalty from the NCAA and having its entire football season canceled. I said canceled in 1987. We'll also answer questions from you, our loyal audience, and we won't cancel you. 1987, the year of cancel culture. All right, before we get to our top three stories, LZ, what is your sports mood Today, we're bringing back the sports mood. I am frustrated. I am frustrated because I am a big tennis fan. And as a big tennis fan, I wanted to be overwhelmed with a sense of destiny. Because for the first time, I want to say since 2005, someone other than Rafa Federer Djokovic and Murray became the number one player in the world. We're talking nearly like 20 years of just dominance. (laughs) And who is it? It's a fucking Russian. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. So I'm sitting here and I'm like going, this is an (laughs) awesome moment for my sport. And we should be like, oh my God, the new generation is finally broken through and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) But instead, I'm looking and I'm going, are you kidding me? Out of all the times to have a Russian player become number one in the world, does it have to be this week? <laughs> the timing is a great, and we'll get into this in our first segment, that uh, I think he has spoken out a little bit against Putin. We have plenty of time to discuss that, but yes, certainly not ideal. I will confess my sports mood is A, again, terrified 
it's really fun to have the the letters ICBM back in my life again. It's just to have that popping up across my social media feed all the time. Love that. But I will confess, and we'll get into this in our third segment. I just need baseball to happen. <laughs> it's March. This is the part of March Madness. You know, the conference tournaments are happening. I love college basketball. All those great right. things are happening. But if there's no college basketball, it's not great. I need my baseball. I need the billionaires and the not actual millionaires, by the way. Whenever people have this that discussion, the, most players are not millionaires. I feel obliged to point out. 100,000 millionaires. Yeah, 100,000. If at best, a lot of young players right. aren't even that. But we'll have time to talk about that. Okay, LZ, let's move on to our first big story, the sports world's reaction to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Please, no more war. You know, um, it doesn't matter uh, who's in the war, uh, Russia, Ukraine, and different countries. Uh, I think we live in a world like uh, we have to live in peace. That was Russian NHL star and Washington Capitals captain Alex Ovechkin responding to a reporter's question about the invasion of Ukraine, which now enters its sixth day. Ovechkin is a longtime friend of the architect of the war, Russian President Vladimir Putin. But what's notable about his comments is that even he isn't willing to openly support Putin's horrific gambit. By and large, the highest profile Russians in America are its athletes, such as tennis stars Andrei Rublev and Daniil Medvedev. But they have universally shown disdain for the invasion and called for peace. In fact, the entire sports world, especially in Europe, has shown full-throated support for Ukraine, presenting a united front that's almost certainly had an effect on public opinion. LZ, we've all been moved by the bravery of Ukrainian athletes who are taking up arms and joining the fight. But let's start with the response of Russian athletes to the invasion. What impact do you think it's had? It is absolutely incredible because I do not recall seeing... Russian athletes in particular, but really athletes from communist or socialist nations in general, really speak out against their state government, their state media, and certainly not any sort of geopolitical positioning like the invasion in, in Ukraine that we're witnessing right now. I don't recall seeing that. And particularly when it comes to seeing that directed towards someone known for killing his enemies. President Vladimir Putin former KGB officer, KGB for most of his adult life, actually, is a vicious man. And his method of maintaining power is not above imprisoning his opponents or any sort of opposition. And it hasn't been above poisoning or having opposition shot in the streets. This has all been well documented. And this is so well documented that no one's even shocked anymore by one of his dissenters disappearing or any of that. It used to be a sort of like, oh my God, he did what? Now it's uh, Putin did it again. There's There's another one. That's how well known this is. And so for these athletes to recognize who they're antagonizing, recognizing at some point they want to go back home, understanding that they have family and friends and loved ones at home now, who Putin could round up, who Putin could throw in these camps that he's taken, I believe, now 4,000 people, I think was the last number I saw, who have been protesting. There's nothing stopping Putin from attacking them or retaliating in that fashion. So it's incredibly brave what these athletes are doing. It's incredibly heroic. I joked earlier that to see Medvedev become the number one player in the world, mm-hmm. you know, the week that his country invades the sovereign land is not necessarily ideal, but he hasn't been quiet about it. He has certainly has taken this opportunity to talk about peace and not wanting to see further war. So I, I think it's a remarkable day in international sports history, one to me that is on par with what we witnessed in Mexico in 1968, where you had a government will tell his athletes, basically, don't you dare. And the athletes on the biggest stage said, you know what? Yeah. I want to talk about Ovechkin for just to start out for a moment, because Dominic Hachik, Hall of Famer uh, uh, goalkeeper, called him chicken shit for not coming out harder against Putin. On one hand, I understand that. Ovechkin, I'm sure, has frustrated a lot of people with his support of Putin for a while now. And even his his statement was hardly a knock it off, Vladimir. This is not what we Russians stand for. It was still, I, I, just, I just want peace. I just want peace. I don't peace. know if this is good for everybody. Yes. But that said, 
he has been unequivocally pro-Putin really for most of his right. career. He's tried to straddle it a little bit, but it's not being sometimes pro-Putin and sometimes anti-Putin. No, he's not doing a Tom Brady straddling. Exactly. He's a pro-Putin, but also I love America and the Stanley Cup, but also I'm very pro-Putin. I mean, again, he put up an Instagram post starting Putin team uh, a few years ago. I couldn't find that post mm. over the last mm. couple of days. Wonder I wonder what, what happens. I don't, I don't want to act like Ovechkin has had anything near the bravery that you've seen as some of those tennis players have had. However... I do think it's telling. <laughs> like, it reminds me, frankly, a little bit of when Belichick yeah. refused to take the uh, award from Trump, where it's like, listen, I'm with this guy, but I'm not down this with this. Yeah, and that's probably Ovechkin not really probably fully comprehending what Putin was before this. We've talked about Joe Biden on this podcast and how we like to embrace sports a little bit more. And there's one person that's saying, Putin's going to do this. This is going to happen. Listen, it's been him and his administration for, for several weeks now. And so I think a lot of us have been surprised, including people like Avection, who have been some Putin supporters for a long time, but didn't think he would quite do this. And frankly, up until Thursday afternoon, I didn't think no. he was going to do this. It's indicative that these athletes, who, again, are among the most high-profile people you're going to see, that most of Americans know, the fact that they are not on board contrast this to what we've seen with China, right? The idea that like anything even slightly against the state will get you disappeared. That's not happened here. I think that speaks, A, to the... Americanization of the athletes a little bit in that like I that or the westernization probably a better way to put it of the athletes which is to say they a lot of times have lived internationally for a long time they don't travel with other Russians they travel with other tennis players they travel with other hockey players they're less prone to propaganda but I would also argue part of this is because I think it speaks to maybe Putin not being as strong as I think we and a lot of people himself included thought that Russian athletes feel like they can say this and that they sense weakness, I think is a good sign. Now, that weakness could totally be the reason that I'm talking, worried about ICBMs popping up in my timeline. There's also a downside to the weakness, but I do think it is telling in the same way that we've seen a little surprised by a lot of the Western world. Switzerland isn't even neutral anymore. As someone that's been a little worried about democracy losing, totalitarianism winning, to see that it's been encouraging in that way, as long as Putin doesn't throw a nuke or anything. I've actually found it generally kind of encouraging. But I think sports has reflected that. I think people have recognized he's weak and there is power. This is the side to be on right now. I think the Ukrainian presence had a lot to do with that too. The Ukrainian people have had a lot to do with that too. But I think it's clear sports tends to follow the politics a lot of times on this rather than lead on it. And I think there's no question that's what's happened here. I hear what you're saying in terms of the weakness of Putin, but I don't believe he's weak. He's just a victim of poor calculation right now, his own poor calculation, because he certainly, I think, misinterpreted the dismissive nature of some of the things that he was allowed to continue to do. Remember, there really wasn't a punishment for his invasion of Georgia. What he went through with Crimea really wasn't punishment either. And even if you step away from, let's say, geopolitical posturing in terms of trying to reacquire nations to rebuild Mother Russia the way that the USSR used to be, which is clearly part of his mission and what he wants to be his legacy in this misguided attempt to bring Russia back to where it was as opposed to help it extend to what it could be today. He wants to go back yesteryear. That's for him and his people to resolve. But in terms of invasions, the international community have done this a lot He's been able to continue to do whatever the hell it is he wanted to do. And I would even say the most basic aspect of this we just witnessed in the Olympics, where there was literally a Russian athlete busted performance enhancement drugs, <laughs> and the world couldn't even come together to say, you shouldn't skate. <laughs> yeah, like, that's absolutely true. If I'm a dictator like Putin, and I've invaded countries and, and annexed Crimea and I get sanctioned. But at the end of the day, like the world can't come together for a sustained criticism or critique of what I'm doing. And then I see something as blatant as my figure skater getting busted for PEDs <laughs> on the heels right. of a PED exposure that went all the way to the Kremlin. You didn't really punish the athletes then. You didn't punish the athletes now. You didn't punish us for Sochi. So, like, why would he assume that when it comes to something difficult, 
that the world will stick together in its criticism of Russia when it couldn't stick together on the easy shit. Kicking someone out of the Olympics after they've been busted for a PED will, that's easy shit. And we couldn't even do that. You were like going, well, that's a protocol. She is a minor. She said it was her grandfather's drugs. Like, what the fuck are we doing here? So here we are now, fast forward, you know, a few weeks more. And now we have this situation with Ukraine. And I'm sure Putin was probably thinking, yeah, they'll fight. Yeah, they'll criticize. But the world hasn't shown that it has to sort of will to follow through and sustain the criticism to the point in which it will hurt us and deter what I want to do. And again, I go back to Georgia, not just Crimea, Georgia, unprovoked Mm -hmm. during the W administration. There were strong words. I remember the words. (laughs) I was in Sochi when Crimea happened. And everyone was like, oh, this isn't good. This isn't good. Then everybody went home. Then everyone went home. (laughs) Everybody went home. home. That's another thing, too. I think you're seeing this from leagues, right? Now, the same way we're seeing banks not wanting to work with Russia – I have to say the idea that the IOC and FIFA, literally two of the most corrupt, cowardly organizations yes. you could possibly come up with in all of sports, have actually taken really hard lines on this. Russia's kicked out of the World Cup. They were at about 35% chance of making it, so they were not certain that they were going to make it. But that's over. That's right. done now. Right. Like, that's that's not nothing, man. The World Cup is in November. It's a big deal. Russia just hosted the World Cup. It was a big, massive kind of moment for them. To see the owner of Chelsea divesting his uh, shares is a big deal. To see The NHL. The NHL is a big deal. That's a, and listen, a huge deal. Yeah. And listen, I think Dominic Hodgson, Dominic Hodgson said in his kind of tweet storm, I would argue he got a little out over his skis a little bit. Not only, Ribio Oveshkin's fine. Skates because he played hockey. He's I guess that's true. I guess if you're over your skates, you do that Gordie Howe celebrate thing. Either way, he said, I think all Russians should not be allowed to play in the NHL. And that's fine. It's like, okay, easy, easy. <laughs> We're not saying that. And I think. Why, why aren't we saying that though, Will? Because if, if, because if people are well, saying to all Russian soccer players, you can't play in this tournament. Then yeah, but that's a national team. That's a national team for national pride. A lot of these individual athletes, I mean, we're not hoping out saying them. Evidently can't play tennis, right? It's on my docket. I don't know about you. <laughs> I'm just saying that I'm not sure how punishing individual athletes, particularly ones speaking out uh, against this war, does anything. In fact, we spent a lot of time in this conversation talking about like, wow, it's really made a difference that Russian athletes have spoken out in this. I don't see how, I hate to use this word, deplatforming them. I hate, I, I hate, you know what I mean, right? Not having them have that kind of megaphone, which I do think has made the difference. I, and I would say this, this as well. I think we're underselling what the Ukrainian athletes have been a part of in doing this too. What we've seen from the Ukrainian people and not just the bravery and the courage, but like, I, I saw this great interview with a 22-year-old who just picked up arms and said, I've got to fight. He's like, I'm not a fighter. I'm not brave. I'm not courageous. So I'm just literally, this is where I live, and they're trying to destroy it, so I have to defend it. And there's something visceral about that that I think, frankly – can cross over to a lot of other activism in sports and a lot of other activism that we see of people defending where they've come from against people who are trying to destroy it. I think that urgency has led to a lot of the switch in public opinion as well. Well, that and the fact that this conversation, and I know this is going to suck, but it has to be brought up because this is, to me, part of the differences. Russia doesn't necessarily have to deal with the racism aspect of this conversation in the same way that we do here in the States. That because it is a predominantly white country with white athletes criticizing white people, or in this case, a white leader about attacking other white nations, it gets to have this geopolitical conversation somewhat in a silo or in a vacuum detached from some of the other ugliness that really hinders our abilities to have similar sort of conversations because of the long history of racism in this country. So while we have certainly have had athletes from all the same sports that you're talking about criticize the government based upon policies that the athletes do not agree with, because of the element of racism and the history of racism in this country, the entire conversation gets muddled and it gets more difficult to negotiate. And more importantly, it makes it easier to divide and conquer it. Because all you have to do is appease to 
to a constituency that doesn't want to see Black people or Latinos or Asian Americans or anyone other than white succeed. I do believe that MG, M, what is her name? MTG, I guess. <laughs> she has not earned what, it. What her acronym is, because... you know, she's running around <laughs> speaking to white nationalist organizations. I'm sure they wouldn't necessarily want to be engaged in a, you know, Black Lives Matter conversation as it pertains to the NFL and whether or not they should be doing more in the communities of the players. They don't want anything to do with that. And that's the conversation that over in this part of the world, they don't have to engage in. Though, the videos of them leaving Black people in the train stations, the reports of Black people being pushed out, is a reminder that just because they don't have the conversation about racism doesn't mean racism isn't there. I believe that when this is all said and done, provided that cooler heads prevail, what the Ukrainian athletes have shown American athletes is that you do have power. You do have a voice. And while it sounds weird to be saying that now, especially post-May 2020 after the murder of George Floyd, that, and you see so many athletes using their platforms and using their voice, there are still people who doubt. Yeah. And so this is just one more example away from the states, away from domestic conversations to reemphasize that, no, you actually have real power. Lomachenko is a, I believe, a two-time gold medalist in, in like, what is it, lightweight boxing? This is not a big, strong guy. He's a fighter. He's a world champion fighter for sure. But he's not a huge man. He's taking up arms to defend his country. He's using his voice to defend his country against a man known for killing people for speaking out against him. That's power. So not to trivialize the tedious state that we still find ourselves in, and it is very quite tedious still to this point, and President Biden has what could very well be one of the most important State of the Union addresses since Kennedy, as far as I'm concerned, about where we are in this conversation. And obviously no one wants World War III. Assuming that we make our way past that, one of the storylines I think athletes and people who are into sports should be able to take away from this is that there is truly power when an athlete speaks because of their place in society. And I have been blown away by the tennis players, by the boxers, by the hockey players, by the athletes who have said, we want peace, not war. I still can't believe I'm saying this, but way to go, IOC and FIFA. Man, don't wow. say that. I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I felt weird to say, I need to go rinse my mouth out with something very <laughs> Not cleansing. vodka though, not Russian vodka. No, 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 only Ukrainian vodka. Only Ukrainian vodka. For me. All right, well, let's move on to our next big topic. Phil Mickelson, Saudi Arabia, and the hazards of sports washing. There's so much to like and admire about Phil, but there's another side to him, and he's constantly getting in his own way and creating these controversies and setting himself on fire. And there's this war that kind of rages within Phil. He's really complex. I think he's the most compelling figure in sports in a lot of ways, but he just has a tendency to say the wrong thing at the wrong time, and he burns up a lot of goodwill. In reality, you know, the battle between Phil, the good guy, and, and Phil, the muckraker, that, that's really the defining tension in his life. That, my friends, was golf writer Alan Shipnick on a recent podcast talking about golf legend Phil Mickelson, whose involvement with the proposed rival golf tour to the PGA that's financed by Saudi Arabia has him embroiled in a major soap opera that could also destroy his career. Mickelson has been in odds with the PGA for years, believing that it has withheld money from players in the form of prize money and by controlling the sports media rights. So Mickelson quietly got deeply involved with the alternative league, helping to draft its operating plan, and it was reportedly offered, wait for this, $100 million to play in its tournaments and recruit other stars. And then his plans blew up in his face. Mickelson had a conversation with Shipnuck, who's writing an unauthorized biography about him, and said that the Saudis are, quote, scary motherfuckers to get involved with. We know they kill Khashoggi and have a horrible record on human rights. They execute people over there for being gay. Knowing all of this, why would I even consider it? Because this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to shape how the PGA Tour operates, and the Saudi money has finally given us that leverage. I'm not sure I even want the new lead to succeed, 
I mean, fuck, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> but just the idea of it is allowing us to get things done with the PGA Tour. End quote. After Shipnick published this quote, all hell broke loose. Surprise, surprise. Star players disavowed the new league, probably stopping it in his tracks. Mickelson issued a lengthy apology, and many of his longtime sponsors fired him. He also said that the comments were off the record and taken out of context, which Shipnick denies, and is now stepping back to, quote, prioritize the ones I love most and work on being the man I want to be, end quote. In the meantime, the PGA, which said that any player who joined the rival league would be banned for life, could suspend Mickelson. Well, <laughs> is this what you get for aligning yourself with an authoritarian regime? I got to tell you, I'm, I'm so excited. Finally, an interesting golf story. I have to say, this is like great news to finally have an interesting golf story. It's funny because like, it's very Phil Mickelson, right? Mickelson's whole thing is he tries to be like the man of the people while also always just being about Phil right. Mickelson at all times. That's his fundamental thing. That's why it makes him Phil Mickelson. What's that meme of uh, the tragic news, the worst person in the world makes a good point? He is not wrong about this Saudi organization, how they are very shady and what they do to journalists and what they did to the Washington Post columnist. He's not wrong about that. But again, he's not saying, well, so therefore I won't be involved with him. He's just like, but they're giving me so much money and I'm sick of the PGA. He likes to talk. He likes being Phil Mickelson. He likes to believe that everyone is is hanging on his every word and all of his opinions are true and real. I feel like this quote of, of Mickelson's, it's pure Mickelson. Because Mickelson's not an idiot. Right. Among golfers, he's not an idiot. Being on like the top 50% of humans puts you in like the top 2% of golfer intelligence, as far as I'm concerned. He's one of the smarter golfers, but deep down at the end of the day, he doesn't give a shit about anyone but himself. And so the idea that he would say this, which, by the way, as Alan Shipnick pointed out, this was not an off-the-record right. conversation. This was an interview right. that they had just to remind everyone out there, off-the-record means here, here, LZ, let, let's, as a, as a public service, yes. let's you and I play act okay. what off the record means. All right. LZ, I'd like to interview you right now. May I ask you some questions? Is this on the record or off the record? I would like to say that it is off the record. Do you agree? It is off the record, meaning not my name or any of the information I'm giving you will be in print. It is only for background, correct? Correct. Okay. That's the gallant part. Here's the goofiest part of the conversation. <laughs> you ask me any question you want, LZ, that I can give you an opinionated answer on. All right. That Popeye's chicken sandwich, was that a little overrated? Only morons would eat Popeye's. They're idiots. Every person I see eating Popeye's is a drooling moron. Oh, by the way, that's off the record. You can't use that. That's not how it works. That's not, that's how, not it how it works. works. You, can't, you can't say off the record after you, you say it. You gotta do it first. You gotta do it first and they have to agree. <laughs> right. Phil Mickelson, let this be a lesson to you. That's how that works. Okay, getting back to the previous conversation. <laughs> also, I enjoy doing improv with you, LZ. I, I enjoy you oh. trashing Popeye's chicken. I like Popeyes. I'm just trying to make my overarching point. Yeah. Pro Popeyes. It's off the record anyway. This whole podcast is off the record, right? Exactly. The point is, this is a very Mickelson thing to say something truthful, but also entirely self-aggrandizing. And so it makes sense that this would blow up on him. When you think about it, this was always how Mickelson was going to go down. <laughs> to say something that he shouldn't say that speaks to his utter kind of soullessness as a person and how he kind of only cares about himself. And listen, ultimately, I think good things came out of this. Uh, not that the PGA Tour is such a wonderful place where great things happen, but they are shady people that were behind that thing. And, and I think we've seen the Saudi government do this before with the WWE, where they will try to, I think, sports wash is the th thing we use in the yes. intro, which is they launder the bad things they do through giving money in sports. China has been a part of this as well. Russia has been a part of this as, as well in a lot of ways. Maybe there should be a challenger to the PGA Tour, but it should not be these guys. And so Mickelson not only shat in his own mess kit, as my dad might say, but he shat in several others' mess kit. And I would say that's probably a good thing. It's a military term. Right. You shit in your mess kit. You shat in your mess you kit. Your mess kit has been shat in. I don't want to think about my mess kit. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Keep your mess kit and your shit are separate. You know, I'm going to cut Phil Mickelson a break, believe it or not. Okay. Because to your earlier point, he's not wrong. And even though what he is saying in terms of it's a little bit unnerving, and I appreciate the fact that he shut up the LGBTQ plus people who are being killed and executed over there for sport. There's a lot of people 
don't know that. So I'm glad that Mm -hmm. he pointed that part out. But we do business with these type of regimes all the time because it's beneficial for us monetarily. So what Phil Mickelson really expressed was selfish for sure, but it was also the epitome of U.S. foreign policy as it (laughs) pertains to trade. You know, Phil Mickelson is basically just the U.N. ambassador going off on China for its atrocities while also knowing that we are financially intertwined with China. And we are intertwined with China because it's financially beneficial. So, yes, Phil Mickelson was an ass, but he was only an ass in the sense that he said the loud part louder. It's not (laughs) even the quiet part. It's the loud part. (laughs) And he just said it louder. That's all. And I guess he's going to be punished. And I guess he's going to be the sacrificial lamb. But then what exactly are we going back to once Phil Mickelson's been punished? We're going back to this same scenario in which he said, there are businesses, there are corporations, there is a government, there are multiple governments that are in bed with these nations that have human rights violations. And we continue to do business with them because it's financially beneficial for us to do so. So if the PGA tour is really upset, (laughs) then instead of trying to make Phil Mickelson the scapegoat to a messy conversation, you begin to have the messy conversation. And I, I had a similar conversation with someone who's associated with the tennis world. Mm-hmm. And I asked this individual, basically, what the fuck? You got beat by FIFA? You can't make a statement about Russia <laughs> before FIFA? <laughs> like, wh- what's happening here? <laughs> and the response I got was, they're nervous about making China upset because China's heavily invested in global tennis. And once that was said to me, obviously I was disgusted, but I also was like, I get it. I understand. We just went through this thanks to Daryl Morey with the NBA in China. And, you know, the fact that People are so focused in on individual athletes, you know, whether it's someone's shoe or in Phil Mickelson's case, someone having $100 million to help promote a league. The reality is whether they are focused in on the individual or not, those policies that we say are atrocious and are atrocities against mankind, humankind, and should be changed, we aren't necessarily punishing them for not changing it. We're still in bed with them. We still have a beneficial relationship. So, yeah, Phil Mickelson stepped in it. But if Phil take a look around, he sees a whole lot of people are stepping in it with him. He just happens to be the one with the big name today who's being the focus of the conversation today. But, you know, as I said, Daryl Morey and LeBron and James Harden and Clay Thompson, they were those people yesterday. And I promise you, Will, there'll be somebody tomorrow. The thing about Mickelson in this is I kind of want to be on his side, right? Because really, if you take a step back from it, what his view on this is exactly what Greg Norman, who is the person that ran this new league, or Byron Dushumbu, or whatever the names are, <laughs> those guys we were making fun of for their feud uh, a while back, right. they were talking about joining this league. There were a lot of big-time golfers that were considered joining this league. The only difference between Mickelson and them is Mickelson was slightly bothered, slightly, not enough to like not be involved with them, right. but slightly bothered by their history of human rights violations. And he said it out loud. And that's the only difference. Had he not said it out loud, that view, perhaps minus the part where he calls out the human rights of things, which I'm sure probably other golfers haven't thought about at all, right. is exactly what the view was, exactly why the PGA Tour was nervous. Right. The reason the PGA Tour is going so hard on Mickelson now is because it's a way to punish the league. I'm sure the PGA is elated that this has happened. Once he said that, that immediately made all the other golfers be like, no, no, right. we want nothing to do. It's and it's knows. Exactly. So it makes me want to give Mickelson credit. And if he had just played this a little bit differently, he could have been the hero out of this. He could have said, they offered me $100 million and I was going to do it. But you know what? 
Look at what they did to that journalist. Look at what they do to the LGBT. Right. Look at all the stuff that they do. It would have been the same result as now. <laughs> that like the league would have been in trouble, the PGA tour would have fought it off, and he would have not gotten his hundred million dollars. Right. But because he's so Mickelson, it's wrapped up in, yeah, they do these things, but hey, a hundred million dollars is a hundred million dollars. <laughs> so, like at that point, it's just like, oh, okay, well, then never mind. Then you suck too. And it's why it's a perfect Mickelson story. He's thoughtful and intelligent. But just a little and not enough. He could have been a hero. He totally could have been a hero. The PGA Tour would have not suspended him. They'd have been, thank you for calling out what those competitors were going to do. Presidential Medal of Freedom. Exactly. But he didn't because he couldn't help himself to be like, yeah, but the thing is, I don't give a shit about any of that stuff. I only care about me. I'm Phil Mickelson. So uh, He's like, hey, man, there's some gangsters over there. That shit's kind of fucked up. Yeah, that must be how they got all that money they're going to pay me. Thanks, guys. And again, it's hard to look at the PGA Tour and be like, whew, I'm glad the good guys won. The PGA Tour does does not have the institutional ability to oppress people the way the Saudi government does. But the idea that PGA Tour is like, whew, all right, go America. Go with the good stuff you guys are doing. It's hard to argue that that, that's the case. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So we move on. Okay, LZ, let's take a quick break. And when we return... We're going to talk about the owners who don't want fans to watch their sport. The Long Game with LZ and Leach. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. All right, LZ, we're back. How close are we to getting a deal done? Boy, if you were to look at it like a football field, I guess that it's about the 30-yard line. There's still two major issues that we need to focus on today. Number one, the size of the postseason playoff field. Uh, the players are saying they wanted it 12. The owners are saying they wanted it 14. They needed it 14. That's a piece of leverage for them. And there's also the issue of the competitive balance tax. The owners, of course, want a lower competitive balance tax to restrict the spending of big market teams like the Yankees, the Dodgers, and the Red Sox. The players want a higher competitive balance tax so that those teams can spend more freely. The owners moved to some degree yesterday on that. That's a big number to watch today. You just heard an ESPN report regarding the labor negotiations between Major League Baseball's owners and its players, which are happening right now, Tuesday afternoon, as we record this podcast. Since the collective bargaining agreement expired on December 2nd and the owners locked out the players, the two sides have been far apart on a number of issues, almost all of them having to do with money. And up until Monday, the owners had been taking a very hard line, making few concessions and even threatening to cancel games from the upcoming season, which is supposed to begin and better begin on March 31st. (laughs) However, after 16 hours of talks on Monday, and shout out, by the way, for all those reporters out there that had to sit and watch owners just walk back and forth across a gate for 16 hours. You are the nature of what journalism is. After 16 hours of talks on Monday, the owners finally made some significant moves on minimum salaries and on the competitive balance tax and have extended the deadline before they start canceling games another 24 hours and maybe even longer after that. You listeners know better than me. So there's hope now that a deal can maybe be made. Now, let's make no mistake about it. Whether they get a deal or not, LZ, the owners are responsible for this. 
They locked the players out. They waited 43 days to make their first proposal. The players have basically been asking for what amounts to a cost of living increase, and the owners have, up until Monday, said no to pretty much all of it. In fact, they want you to believe that owning a team is not a good business. But I feel like we have a very good way to refute that. The Atlanta Braves just reported a $104 million profit in 2021, a pandemic-affected season. Baseball is an incredibly good business. Elsie, if they can come to an agreement and games won't be lost, and please let them come to an agreement so games will not be lost, do you think fans will give baseball a pass and come back? Or has the labor strife damaged the health of the game moving forward? We never care about how the sausage is made. Yeah, We just want to know if it's on the grill when we're hungry. <laughs> and that's going to be the telltale sign. If we go to the barbecue well and there are sausages on that grill, and there's buns and all the fixings, you know, maybe some kettle chips. I'm a kettle chip fan. I'm a kettle chip fan. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Then no one's going to care. But if we go to that grill, Will, and that shit's bare or worse yet, it's got that fake meat. Uh. <laughs> there's nothing worse to me than grilling fake meat. <laughs> You're not really grilling anything at all. <laughs> if it's something like that, then we're going to care. And the longer that grill is empty, the more upset we're going to be to the point in which eventually we're going to look somewhere else to eat, which is essentially what I was talking about last week when we were having this discussion prior to, you know, the missing of the deadline, the self-imposed deadline for, for Major League Baseball to, in order to get spring training or at least start on time, if you will. And that is this idea that baseball thinks it is competing against the players or that the owners are trying to squeeze the players because they think that's the game. <laughs> when the game is really fighting to keep all eyeballs on baseball as much as possible for as long as possible, and that the players are actually your partners in this attempt and not your adversary in this attempt. The baseball players aren't running around trying to do things to get people to look at everything else, right? It's what the owners have decided to do. Right. And it's right. going to create a vacuum that's going to get filled. People aren't going to just sit around and do nothing for four hours on March 31st because there's no baseball. They're just going to do something else. And if they end up liking that something else, like, oh, I don't know, season two of Ozark, who knows? I don't know. Well, like talking to your family, theoretically. That's, 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 that's the thing I don't do during baseball season. So maybe I'll do that this year. Right. And maybe you'll like it. And maybe you decide to keep doing it. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. The point being is that they're blowing it. And, you know, just as I was talking earlier, there was momentum out of last season because of all the anticipated movement with named players that was supposed to happen. There was legitimate offseason buzz that's usually reserved for the NBA. The NFL has offseason buzz that's usually reserved for the combine. For the NBA, is free agency. And that was supposed to be the same thing for baseball. And baseball, just as the buzz was starting to really get going, they pulled the plug themselves. And all that momentum just died. And I told you, Will, they were going to fuck it up. I told you. <laughs> they haven't fucked up yet. They haven't fucked up yet. We'll see. Well, now, here we are on Fuck It Up Eve. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, the old Transylvanian holiday of Fuck It Up Eve. Fuck it up, Eve. <laughs> For the ghosts of goblins and ghouls come to visit. For the goblins of, of capitalism <laughs> to choke out the joy and love we have for baseball. <laughs> They're on Fuck It Up, Eve, and I'm sitting here and I'm like going, are you really going to blow this? And I'm leaning towards, yes, we're at the 11th hour of the 11th hour of the 11th hour. And they're still trying to squeeze nothing but money. Will, do you see anything else? I, like all the reports I've seen, I have not seen anything holding this up in, in terms of procedures or policies yeah. or game changes. I've only seen money. I'll give the players this. One of the major chips that they have to trade is expanded playoffs. Right. The one people you're seeing talking about like, hey, is it really good for baseball to have half the teams, more than half, make the playoffs. When you play 162 games throughout the year, there's less than half to make it in the NBA, but they play 82 games. And even that, there's all swaths of January you can comfortably skip, and it's really oh. okay. 
so for baseball to this sport that has so many games to have that only eliminate half the teams, I think a lot of players have said, are we sure we want to do that? The owners are like, yeah, we want to do that because there's money in postseason playoffs. So yes, we want to do that. Right. One of the, for the frustrating things about this negotiation for me has been kind of exactly that. There's been so few discussions of the game, which needs help. <laughs> the game is going too slow. So many strikeouts, all the pace of play stuff that we've talked about with baseball, they need to address that. They're not even talking about that at all. And the only time it's come up at all about, hey, what's good for actually baseball and baseball fans, it's been immediately put in the pocket of, yeah, but how can we get playoff money out of it? Right. And the fact that the players are the only one worried about that, I think speaks to the larger issue and frankly, why we are here. I do, however, think that your point about how the sausage have made is a big deal. I've seen some people on Twitter, Eugene Friedman, who's a labor lawyer, and he's talked a lot about these issues, Joe Sheehan as well. They're like, well, if the players accept this deal, they're losing. That's probably true. Sure. You know who's definitely losing if they don't take this deal? Everyone, because there will be no baseball. Listen, that's the owner's fault. I'm not saying that the players have to own that or it's somehow their fault. But I'm telling you, when push comes to shove, if you're asking me to choose between the players getting the deal that I believe they deserve mm -hmm. or they're not being baseball. I, I want there to be baseball. <laughs> like I want there to be baseball. And I think the average person is like that as well. Yeah, I do think that the public opinion this year has been much more on the side of the players than it's been in any sort of labor issue ever involving major league baseball before. And I think owners recognize that. I think Manfred recognized that. I think it spoke to a little bit of the urgency that he's had the last couple of days. And frankly, why I think something will get done. I know I said this last week, but <laughs> I, I, but I do, I do think something will get done. Cut two people list this Wednesday morning. Like listen to this dipshit going at that again, but I mean it. If just because, A, as we said last week, owners are not going to accept what the players are offering. But even if they did, they would still win. So I think owners do actually kind of know that. So at a certain level, they get to look like the heroes while still winning. It's kind of a no-brainer for them to just give in and just give them what they want or at least get closer on this. I do think something will get done. And while I think this is entirely the owner's fault and entirely out of owner's greed – if there are games, people won't care. They'll go on and watch. And uh, you know what? I will be okay with that because it means baseball, the sport that I love, the sport that I deeply care about, will have dodged this massive bullet that you and I have been discussing. Well, I think the bullet is still coming. We'll see if it's been dodged or not, but the bullet is yeah. definitely still coming. Question for you. This is for the fans who likes to be in the weeds a little bit. Mm -hmm. You have several notable names who are free agents still. Mm -hmm. It's March. Yeah, like it's going to be nuts because it was nuts anyway leading up to this because they had to hurry up and get, get, get it done before the lockout. Carlos Correa is still out there. Freddie Freeman, one of the biggest offseason stories where the defending champion Braves would bring right. back their most beloved player. Right. And now that we all can look like, hey, they made $140 million last year. I know that they've got the money to do it. They actually have guys like Acuna that are very cheap for the next few years mm -hmm. and Albies as well. They should be able to do it. I think another telling part of this we haven't discussed this yet, but there seem to be several reports that one of the reasons that Derek Jeter left the Marlins and decided to not be the CEO of the Marlins anymore because he, yeah, because he didn't want to go deep in the hole. He wouldn't have to go to his right. No, because he did not want. I don't think I've ever seen him hit the ball to the right. <laughs> oh man, and he certainly can't field to the right. There's no question about that. But like many reports say, that one of the reasons he left is he had an understanding that the Marlins were going to add more to the payroll this year, and they decided not to, and he felt like he had been betrayed in that regard. He's still coming from a player's aspect that speaks to the idea of the general frustration that people have with the owners, right? They're more interested in making money than winning baseball games, which I get. Capitalism is a real thing. I understand not everyone has to run everything at billion-dollar losses just to make you and I happy. But they're making money, and the idea that this is so widespread throughout sports and the fact that this time it feels like people called them on it. There's always been water carriers, right? Whether in the media or whether they're in broadcast, water carriers for the owners who will do the, well, these guys are playing a kid's game. Why don't they appreciate it? There's a lot fewer of those. All those people I, I talked about that are out there covering the negotiations, they are not covering it that way. They're covering it, it I would argue, accurately, which is to say this was an owner's lockout, and uh, they're the ones that are keeping this held up. That's why I think, famous last words, but I think the owners have recognized that at least Manfred has recognized that and is trying to salvage 
what's frankly a deal that's already a win for him in the first place. So that's why I think it's going to happen. But again, we still got a few hours to go. I, I, I've been, I haven't been checking Twitter during my rant here, so I don't know if something's happened. I think the season will start on time, and I think that's why. It's not a victory, but it's a victory for me because baseball will be happening, and I like baseball. <clears throat> Sorry, I had to clear my throat. I understand. I've been yammering too much on this episode. No, it's not you yammering. It's the fact that you're in dreamland. If you think <laughs> those people, if you think those people are going to do the sensible thing when they've shown you time and time oh, and time I again, I know they don't get the assignment. I know. No, the assignment's all screwed up. So anyway. I just want to back. It's March first. Thirty days. I'll be about a baseball game. Ah. 30 days. I we don't even know where Clayton Kershaw is going to pitch. That's you know okay. how it is in LA? <laughs> we got time. They'll get it done real fast. I'm not worried about the ability to get teams on the field once they figure this out. They just right. they just gotta get right. it figured out. They just gotta figure it out. So let us know, future listeners, <laughs> of what Ooh. happens. Send me an email because I'm sure I won't be checking. I probably won't even notice. So please email me at williamfleach at yahoo.com and let me know what happens. Okay, well, it's time for This Week in Sports History, where we break down an event from the past through the lens of 2022. The joint investigation between SMU and the NCAA has concluded that between September of 1985 and December of 1986, monthly payments ranging from $50 to $725 were made to numerous student-athletes. According to SMU's investigator in this case, those payments were made by one booster, who neither the university nor the NCAA will name publicly. That was a report from the local Dallas Fox TV affiliate back in 1987 about the corruption in the Southern Methodist University football program. 35 years ago this week, the NCAA delivered what was known as the death penalty to SMU, canceling its entire 1987 football season, limiting scholarships and banning it from bowl games and live television because of repeated recruiting violations. SMU had already been on probation in 1985 after the NCAA discovered it had been paying high school recruits and its own players under the table for years. The school promised to discontinue the illegal practice, but instead kept right on doing it. But after a local Dallas television channel discovered that an SMU booster had paid 13 players a total of 61000 bucks from a slush fund that the university had knowledge of, the NCAA put the hammer down. The school's president, athletic director, and coach were all forced to resign. Most of their players transferred to other schools, and the 1988 season was canceled as well because they had no one left on the team. Today, SMU still competes in Division I, but it took them 21 years after its lost season to reach a bowl game again, and another 10 years after that to get ranked in the top 20. Looking back on all of this, Will... We've seen continual recruiting violations by many, many, many schools for decades, nonstop corruption in the NCAA, and players now being allowed to license their names and images for, in some cases, millions of dollars. It seems unfathomable today that a team could have a season wiped out ever again. I mean, Penn State was allowed to keep playing even after its assistant coach was sent to prison for sexually abusing boys in its locker room. So, Will, what do you think it would take? now for a team to get its football season canceled and with the NCAA no longer acting as a governing body, who would do the sanctioning anyway? I don't mean to be morbid about this, but the only way a college football team is canceling their season at this point is if there's like a plane crash, to be honest. To me, Penn State's the example of this, right? You think just out of natural human shame, they would be like, we should maybe not Play. Let's take a year off. Take it, maybe take a year off. Take and year off. we can come back. We can come back and right. we'll get our football and we'll get it straightened out. But it just kind of feels after the truly monstrous thing that's been happening here for 30 years when the guy that actually did it had his painting on the wall. I've seen it. I saw the drawing of Zandusky. Like there was literally a drawing of him surrounded by children on the side of the most famous building in University Park. Uh, they've since painted him out. So therefore it didn't happen. Who's so, Barney? All the kids are still there and it's just Barney or something? Like that? uh, yeah, that's a good question. They got him out, but you're right. I wonder if they, they felt like a clown. I don't know what they did. Anyway, it's very disturbing uh, to say the very least. I think of what happened to Baylor with the old basketball coach where there was a player killed and one of his teammates to frame him or what you saw speaking of which at Baylor in football with all the sexual uh, assault stuff going on and Art Bryles, by the way, almost coming, uh, Hugh Johnson. Can we talk, can we just take a pause we for a second? We should talk about that for a second. Take your time. Who the 
fuck thought that was a good idea, man? Yeah. For like a bill. Uh, like, like who thought that was I the way? I appreciate to, what Hugh's doing there. In an HBCU on yeah. top of it? Uh. On top of it? <sighs> it's got to be us. We got to be the That's what here for. Yes. That's not what Grambling does. No, no. Uh. Grambling and HBCUs existed because black children were told they couldn't study in college and that we were being undereducated. And so black people in the midst of all this oppression rallied their funds together, got their academics together and start establishing these universities so that black children could grow and learn and be positive contributors to society. And somewhere along the line, <laughs> somebody thought this was the perfect location for this man to get a a manicure to his image. So Art, Art Bryles getting his professional reputation restored was not part of the initial mission of the HBCU charters. I guess I, I guess that makes sense. I guess it probably wasn't. I I, I, I was so angry. <laughs> so, did that press release that they put out it was just like, well, let's all keep in mind the victims. I'm like, oh, dude, come on. Like, uh, uh, anyway. So, anyway, yeah, so Baylor, bad uh, in both basketball Baylor, and football. I'm not saying that they were okay. They obviously weren't, but they weren't like something that was going on for 25 years within the football program. And Penn State continued to play football the next year. <laughs> and never minding the fact that the things that SMU did have not only regularly been done for 30 years, they are now pretty much sanctioned. <laughs> So never mind that there's no organization that actually come down hard on people and there's no actual rules <laughs> and the things that they got banned for are not actually uh, really illegal anymore. And someone had the defensive coordinator, assistant head coach, and the most popular guy who ran the most prominent children's charity in the state of Pennsylvania. Right. We are. And they did not at least just sit one year, one year feels like it might have been in maybe one year would have been like a good idea. They fought harder to keep Joe Pa's statue than they did to make sure that that would never happen again. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's a certain worldview that you have when you realize the layer of corruption within your organization or in this case within your sports department. And it felt to me that there was more passion from the student body and from boosters to protect Joe Pa than it was at any point to protect these kids. And you're right, Will. Like, if that's not enough, if children, and not just any children, like poor, vulnerable children who were targeted because they were missing like a father figure or they, you know, were missing resources at home and, and, and Sandusky was able to offer these resources, kind of like the it clown, you know, in the sewers say, Hey, come hang out with me. The fact that he did those things and there clearly was information that the administration had that Joe Pa was cognizant of that other people were aware of, that could have at least demanded a more thorough investigation long before the whole thing came tumbling down. The fact they didn't even do that. I don't know if there's anything a university can do at this point that would cause it to cancel its entire season. They'll fire a coach, they'll dismiss student or students, but the idea that an entire football season and all the revenue that's attached to it at this point would just be dismissed. I don't know if there's anything. I don't think murder. I don't think sexual assault. I don't know what the crime could possibly be other than writing a positive review for the new Matrix movie. They didn't have to do it. (laughs) That'll do it. That'll do it. That should do it. We'll close on this. This story was about SMU, but I do feel like inevitably we had to bring Penn State into it. And I do feel like what happened to Penn State to me is that's when it goes wrong. That's when all the good stuff, like all the things of community, of togetherness, of faith, of hope, that's how it curdles and uh, and and goes bad. And uh, and, it, and it wasn't just, just really quick. And it wasn't just Penn State. Remember, they kept playing their season, which means their opponents kept playing the season. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody said, have, I'm not playing this fucking team. Right. And we have games. <laughs> yeah. We have games on the record that were used to make statements in regards to integrating 
college sports and teams refusing, we're not going to go and play this all black team or we're not going to play this team because it has one black player. Like that's happened. And they didn't do that for Penn State. (laughs) We need to have a future topic about Penn State, to be honest, because that's a great question. If something like that happened today, would people not play? I think it's an interesting question that we have no time for because this wasn't even about Penn State. The point is SMU and Craig James and the hookers. We all know that. There you go. So we'll finish on from there. Okay, LZ, let's move on to our listener questions, which Megan, one of our producers, our favorite producer, if we're being honest, has been compiling during the show. Megan, so glad to have you back. Please do not tell your other producers that we just said that. What do you got? Yes, two questions today. First one comes from a YouTube user, you know, Sorry if I butcher this uh, name. Rasiel Guevara wants to know, will Commissioner Manfred be the ultimate scapegoat once negotiations are over and is his job in jeopardy? I think if they lose games, he's in jeopardy. Because what that will mean was he will have failed at the primary job of a commissioner, which is to get all the owners on the same page. The thing about the new CBA has to be ratified by 23 of the 30 owners. That was Bud Selig's genius, I guess, as it is, is he was able to get all the owners on the same page. If they lose games, it's because Manfred could not get the owners together, which means he's failed in his job, which means they'll find someone else who will. I think that speaks another reason to why there was a burr in his bonnet, because I think that he's trying to keep his job. But I think if they lose games, I think he's in trouble. Yeah, I agree with Will. Not about the bonnet part, because I don't think Rob has one. That's true. But in terms of if they lose games, yeah. then he's in trouble. Because even if they lose games and it's not his fault, if we lose games and people become upset, someone has to pay the price. Yes. It's not going to be the players. It's not going to be the owners. It's definitely not going to be the owners. So it's <laughs> going to be Rob. It's going to be Rob. Next question. Okay, Mark47 coming at us from Twitch. Negotiations aside, do you think expanding playoffs is good for the long-term success of the league? Wouldn't more fans enjoy being part of postseason baseball? Will, I would like to start first. Please, go. This is a terrible idea. (laughs) I'm done. Okay, that's good. I understand the argument. There are a lot of baseball purists who think that the too many playoff teams completely devalue the regular season. And I do understand that. We discussed this a little bit earlier. However, it's not just 14 teams making the 12 teams making the playoffs. It's the 16 teams that are in the running or the 17 teams that are running. They keep the regular season games relevant later in the year. And I would argue, I'll put it this way. There have been years, very rare years, that my St. Louis Cardinals have not been in the playoff chase. It makes me enjoy baseball less because I wish the Cardinals were in it. Again, what's my number one rule for baseball? Baseball has to happen. It's the one thing that I ask of baseball is for it to happen. I think a lot of hardcore baseball fans are like that. Yes. Does it devalue the regular season in a theoretical sense? Probably. I would also argue the people that would be most offended by that are people that are going to be watching baseball. I fucking add an addendum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we made fun of a college football bowl game that was based on mayo. Yeah, it was. They put and mayo winner, on the guy's head. <laughs> winner got mayo dumped on his head. Uh-huh. Yes. Are you ready to see mayo on your baseball field? Because that's the equivalent, right? Like, you have diluted the ideal of bowl games in the college level to the point in which it's laughable. None of these bowls really mean anything except maybe the last two go bowl games that are played. Everything else has now been turned into smush and it's not because the quality of play is so poor. It's because you have allowed poor teams to play. And I think the same thing when it comes to baseball. Yes, I can see you looking at the bottom line thinking, <laughs> this is going to bring us so much money. It probably it will bring you so much money. But if everyone can play in the postseason, then what is the point of the regular season? And the more you open up that door for mediocrity, the more mediocrity that's going to come into the fold. I mean, think about the football postseason we just saw. Wildcard weekend was bullshit. (laughs) And the most mediocre team of all won the whole thing. So I totally understand. (laughs) Um, But I mean, I get the finances. I do. I really do. But you can't mass produce everything. I understand. And I get it. the more you try to mass produce lightning in the bottle, the more you end up with just a bunch of empty, broken glass. 
And I think that what's going to happen in Major League Baseball is that the postseason, which used to really feel like something, because you spent from March all the way up until the fall to have a large enough sample size so that all of the world could see these are clearly the best teams involved because of the sample size. 182 games is a lot of games. <laughs> now you're saying, fuck that sample size. We're just going to let in 20 teams and see what happens. <laughs> like, yeah. Turns into Squid Game. Hopefully, listeners of the futures will know uh, whether or not there was baseball. Please let there be baseball. I just want there to be baseball. I don't ask too much. I just ask baseball to happen. You asked the anyway, Bengals to win the Super Bowl. You asked for a lot. That's right. That's true. That was a cheap shot. I'll, I'll confess. And that's our show for this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening to The Long Game with LZ and Leach. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, we'll be live on Twitch, YouTube, and Twitter on Tuesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern. So join us there. The Long Game is produced by Pierre Bienemy, Megan Bernie, Raziel Guevara, Mark Levine and Marshall Eisen. Music is for music is by Gloria Tells. I don't think it's That's for Gloria, that. but it's for Yeah. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Music is by Gloria Tales with some sound design by David Wilson. We'll be back with another podcast next Wednesday. And hopefully by then, there'll be baseball. Baseball.